We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk Time Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome the return of Margaret Skirka, who reports on ICD-11. Former CMS official, now IT consultant, Stanley Nockamson, returns for a second appearance on Talk 10 Tuesday. He'll report on proposed rules from CMS. Talk 10 Tuesday resident psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick will address anti-Asian discrimination. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has the latest coding news plus today's listener survey. And Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. We're all here and ready to go. And no one is more ready to go than the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, and the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 457th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by the ICD University Bookstore. Discover what's in store for you, and good morning, Erica. Welcome back. You have been missed. Oh, thank you. I missed you guys, too. Uh, Good morning, everyone. We're delighted to have Marcus Gurka return to the broadcast this morning. She's going to have an update on ICD-11. Yes, she's going to report on ICD-11, and she'll tell us where the U.S. is compared to other countries that are implementing the new code set. Uh, Marcus is going to answer the question, where in the world is the U.S.? I know Clark has the answer. Well, obviously, it's uh, north of <laughs> South America and uh, south of Canada, eh? <laughs> I guess we could actually ask Carmen San Diego. The big question is when will the U.S. implement ICD-11, and we will ask Margaret later in the broadcast. Also in the broadcast today is our pal Stanley Nockerson with the RegWatch Report. And Dr. H. Stephen Muffick returns to report on a wave of anti-Asian attacks. And there is an ICD-10 code for victims of crime and terrorism. And speaking of codes, Laurie Johnson returns with the Talk 10 Tuesday coding report. Many happy returns. It <laughs> kind of seems like old home week, doesn't it? It sure does. And, of course, Erica returns to the broadcast. What are you going to be reporting this morning during your talkback segment? I'm going to be talking about observations and suggestions about COVID protection from my vacation. Very, very good. Look forward to your report. As always, we have much news to report. And we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S.-based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And quoting from a recent CMS press release, I noticed that CMS says that major findings for national health expenditure projections for 2019 through 2028, that the national health care spending is projected to grow at an average annual rate of 5.4% for 2019 through 2028 and reach $6.2 trillion by 2028. Because the national health expenditures are projected to grow 1.1 percentage points faster than the gross domestic product per year on average over 2019 through 2028, the health share of the economy is projected to rise from 17.7% in 2018 to 19.7% in 2028. Price growth for medical goods and services, as measured by the personal health care deflator, is projected to accelerate averaging 2.4% for the years 2019 through 2028, partly reflecting faster expected growth in health sector wages. And finally, among major payers, Medicare is expected to experience the fastest spending growth, 7.6% per year uh, over the period from 2019 to 28, largely as a result of having the highest projected enrollment growth. 
Cost shifting is a term heavily used in the 1980s. The term meant that Medicare and Medicaid did not have to pay their share of the full cost because some of that cost could be shifted to other payers, including uninsured patients. Providers that could cover fixed costs like depreciation utilities with Medicare and Medicare Medicaid payments would continue to take Medicare and Medicaid patients even if they did not cover the variable cost of things like salaries. Problematically with this cost-shifting approach is the fact that Medicare and Medicaid now take up too much of the patient population, and the percentage is growing according to CMS, and there's just not enough other payers to make up the slack. It appears that either Medicare and Medicaid will have to increase payments to match at least the cost of services, or providers will have to reduce the cost to balance their books, something neither has been able to do since the start of Medicare. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday, it's April 13th, and today the death toll for the deadly coronavirus now stands at more than 562,000. You're listening to Talk Tim Tuesday. Stand by. Each quarter, the AHA examines outstanding coding issues, new procedures, and technology, and provides updates to previous coding guidance. Having an expert at your fingertips can help coding professionals fully master current requirements and guidelines. Now, backed by popular demand, ICD-10 Monitor is offering an exclusive series of on-demand webcasts to review important information released in each of the 2021 AHA ICD-10 CMPCS coding clinics. The first quarter update is led by nationally respected HIM and coding professional Glorianne Bryant. She will review and report on the published guidance given so that you're up to date and on the same page with compliant coding guidelines. Register now to receive an on-demand recap of the first quarter coding clinic shortly after the official AHA guidance is published. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has a Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey, and good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. Today's topic is writing facility-specific coding guidelines. There was an article in the Journal of AHIMA on January 14, 2020, which discussed the process of developing facility-specific coding guidelines. In full transparency, I co-wrote the article with Angela Rickard. Developing facility-specific coding guidelines has become one of my passions. Written guidelines promote data consistency as well as ensure that the data that is collected has a purpose. My fear is without written guidelines that each coder is trained differently and value information may be lost. Coding Clinic and the official coding guidelines support the development of facility-specific coding guidelines. Please note that your facility coding guidelines cannot conflict with the official coding guidelines. In preparation for writing your coding guidelines, understand your data reporting needs. And here are some thoughts. Does the facility have an approved cancer program? You would want to capture personal and family history of cancer if you did have a program. Does the state have a state data commission? You would want to capture all data required from a coding perspective, such as external cause codes. And then when we talk about those codes, it's how many of them do we report? Which ones do we report? Does the state require CPT codes on inpatients? So all of that you need to understand. 
Do you know which payers are paying by MSDRGs, APRDRGs, HCCs, alternative payment models, or something else? I have provided a URL for the Journal of Ahima article, as well as a spreadsheet that we will work through during the next couple of weeks to help you write your own guidelines. You are able to find these resources in the tab identified as Resources from Laurie Johnson on the left side of the screen. Now let's talk about today's listener survey, and it's about your facility guidelines. How are your facility-specific coding guidelines documented? Are they written and available for viewing? Are they verbal, meaning it's an understanding among everyone? Have you started, but you just haven't finished? That's in process. Four is they've not documented. And five is not applicable. We will be back later to review the results. Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson, Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Lori Johnson. And as Lori said, we're going to have the results of the Talk 10 Tuesday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Now's the time for RegWatch featuring National Recognized Healthcare Technology Consultant Stanley Nockerson. And Stanley, good morning. This time of year, a lot of stuff's coming out of Washington. What do we need to know? Uh, good morning, Chuck, and to everybody on the call. On April 8th, CMS issued their second set of proposed payment rules for fiscal year 2022 provider types. In the hospice payment rate update proposed rule, hospices will now see a 2.3% or $530 million increase in their payments for fiscal year 2022. However, hospices that fail to meet quality reporting requirements receive a two percentage point reduction to the annual market basket update for the fiscal year. This rule proposes to rebase and revise the labor shares for continuous home care, routine home care, inpatient respite care, and general inpatient care based on the compensation cost weights for each level of care from the 2018 cost report data for freestanding hospices. The proposed labor share for continuous home care is 74.6% for routine home care, 64.7% for inpatient respite care, 60.1%, and for general inpatient care, 62.8%. In response to the COVID-19 public health emergency, CMS issued regulatory waivers to support providers and suppliers involved in patient care. This included issuing a waiver for hospice aid competency testing to allow for the use of pseudo-patients. The agency believes that this waiver should be made permanent and is proposing the use of the pseudo-patient for hospice aid competency training. As a complement, CMS is also proposing that hospices conduct a competency evaluation related to the deficient and related skills noted during a hospice aid supervisory visit. CMS is proposing a new measure in the quality reporting program called the Hospice Care Index. This single measure includes 10 indicators of quality that are calculated from claims data. Collectively, these indicators represent different aspects of hospice care and aim to convey a comprehensive characterization of the quality of care furnished by a hospice. If finalized, this measure would be publicly reported no earlier than May 2022. CMS is also proposing to add Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and Systems, or CAPS Hospice Survey, star ratings on Care Compare. 
as CMS is also seeking feedback on ways to attain health equity for all patients through policy solutions that apply to the hospice quality reporting program and other quality reporting programs. This is consistent with other proposed rules that have already been issued where CMS continues to ask for feedback on ways to attain health equity in the Medicare and Medicaid programs. On April 8th, CMS issued a proposed rule that would update Medicare payment policies and rates for skilled nursing facilities under the Skilled Nursing Facility Prospective Payment System, the Skilled Nursing Facility Quality Reporting Program, and the Skilled Nursing Facility Value-Based Program for fiscal year 2022. CMS estimates that the aggregate impact of the payment policies in this proposed rule would result in an increase of approximately $444 million in Medicare Part A payments to SNFs in fiscal year 2022. Now, in October 1st, 2019, CMS implemented a new case mix classification model called the patient-driven payment model in order to pay for SNF care. CMS is soliciting broad public comments on a potential methodology for recalibrating this adjustment that would account for the potential effects of the COVID-19 public health emergency without compromising the accuracy of the adjustment. CMS also seeks comments on whether any necessary adjustments should be delayed or phased in over time to provide payment stability for skilled nursing facilities. In response to stakeholder feedback and to improve consistency between the ICD-10 code mappings and current ICD-10 coding guidelines, CMS is proposing several changes to the PDPM ICD-10 code mappings affecting the areas of sickle cell disease, esophageal conditions, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, neonatal cerebral infarction, vaping-related disorder, and anoxic brain damage. CMS adopted standardized patient assessment data elements known as SPADES, which include several social determinants of health. These were finalized in the fiscal year 2020 SNF PPS final rule. Now, CMS is also seeking comment on the possibility of expanding measure development and the collection of other SPADES that address gaps in health equity in the SNF quality reporting program in accordance with the Executive Order 13985 on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. Back to you. That was Healthcare <laughs> IT Authority, Stanley Nockhamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockhamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you so very much for that excellent report, and you can read his reporting in today's ICD-10 Monitor. <laughs> Violent attacks on elderly Asians have spiked in recent months. Reporting this very troubling issue is Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. He is an award-winning author and an internationally renowned psychiatrist who joins us now. So good morning, Dr. Moffat. What is going on here? Well, first of all, Chuck, namaste to you and everyone listening in. If you don't know it, namaste is an Indian Sanskrit greeting that shows respect, conveying that you are equal to one another. Imagine putting your palms together at chest level and taking a bow a bit to the divine manifestations in the other. Unfortunately, way too many Asian Americans are not receiving namaste. Here is what a young adult publishing editor told me the other day. Quote, I'll tell you honestly, Steve, being of Southeast Asian descent with parents from the British Caribbean, I do not like leaving New York City. I feel very comfortable overseas, but pretty much anywhere else in the U.S., I have to be on my guard. End of quote. 
Let's get the worrisome but even underreported statistics over for the more or less COVID year. 3,800 anti-incidents, many violent, 1,000 more than the prior year, with two-thirds being women and many of those elderly, as you said, Chuck. About a year ago, I wrote the first article for a series on the pandemic and coined the unwieldy term Corona-Asia-phobia because it was already clear that Chinese and Asians in general were being blamed for the pandemic by our government. Of course, Asians combine people from many other countries and cultures besides China. The terminology tells us something important. You use anti-Chuck, and anti is one of the terms, along with the isms and the phobias, that are used against those scapegoated. The main other anti-group is anti-Semitism. The antis may be the hardest to stop as they refer to hate, and Jews and Asians have some important things in common. What they don't have in common is easy identification by appearance, But as far as success in America is concerned, they both are the successful minorities, so much so that envy and jealousy can emerge. As was seen in the alt-right chanting in Charleston that, quote, the Jews will not replace us, end of quotes. And the recent lawsuit against Harvard for possible discrimination against Asian applicants, who apparently were viewed as taking up too many slots based on merit. The most likely psychiatric manifestations fall under the trauma spectrum. In ICD-10, from the less severe Z91.49 on up to full PTSD in the F-43s for anyone traumatized. Also to keep in mind was what was mentioned in the show's introduction, another Z-code, Z65.4, for being a victim of crime and domestic terrorism. After the Filipino woman was criminally attacked and bystanders turned their backs in New York, President Biden promised that the government would try to develop ways to combat racism. I would think that some of those new ways to achieve unity and diversity would include parents and teachers teaching tolerance and better control of Internet hate. Asians need more allies, especially among black Americans. But for now, increased safety precautions are necessary, including in coming to some of our healthcare settings. From history, we know that anti-Asian periods in the United States have waxed and waned. Some lessening of hate has occurred when a crisis causing the scapegoating has ended. However, in our current time, we don't know when the pandemic will be over, and its disruptive effects may continue longer. In the meanwhile, in the very least, let's convey and model a namaste movement to every Asian we encounter. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Steve, and namaste to you. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, award-winning author and internationally renowned psychiatrist. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Dr. Moffick. And by the way, we want to congratulate Dr. Moffick. He'll receive an award from the Society for the Study of Psychiatry and Culture. It's an international organization. And he's going to receive this award for his two recent books, Islamophobia and Anti-Semitism. Congratulations again, Dr. Moffick. Our lead story this morning is about ICD-11. Last Tuesday, we heard from Lorraine Fernandez reporting on the work being done by the International Federation of Health Information Associations. That work to encourage implementation in the U.S. for ICD-11. Now we're going to hear from Marcus Gurka. Marcus is going to give us a report on an update on where the U.S. stands among other nations in the implementation of ICD-11. Good morning, Marcus. So where are we as a nation when it comes to ICD-11? Thank you, Chuck, for inviting me again to share some thoughts about I-11 with our listeners. For starters, it will be fully electronic and there are no plans for books. Now, that's a big change. 
It has 17,000 diagnostic categories and over 100,000 medical diagnostic terms. There is an index-based search algorithm that can interpret more than 1.6 million terms. WHO says it's, it's easy to install. You can use it either on or offline uh, using free software. I would encourage you to Google I-11 fact sheet um, that the WHO has put out. It'll come right up, and it it's, um, has really good information about it. Um, so I-11 is comprehensive, but the big unknown is whether countries like us in the U.S., Canada, Germany, and Australia can accept it as it is without doing the various modifications that we did with I-10. So um, the WHO is saying that if there are urgent conditions that after reviewing what we see in I-11, the WHO would just appreciate hearing about it as soon as possible. So just check that fact sheet because it's pretty interesting. For morbidity coding, that's illness coding, of course, um, we used the clinical modification we did to the basic WHO publication. Some countries left it alone, but us and Canada and Germany and Australia did have our um, modifications. And that, so for us, it became 10 CM. We didn't take anything out, but we added many codes. So the basic ICD the world uses has 14,000 codes. After we got done modifying it, it has 70,000 codes, and our PCS system has 87,000 codes. We did it up kind of big. Um, so I've had some email discussion with my counterparts in Canada and Australia, seeing what they're doing, and no, no one has any plans yet to do modification additions, and that's what we hope will happen in the U.S. also, because that's what delayed us. We added tons of codes to injuries, poisonings, and especially external cause codes also. So we were the last civilized nation to adopt. And I think other countries found it just incredulous that we did not do so for morbidity until 2015. Australia was there in 1998 for mortality coding and morbidity in 99. Canada did it in 2000. So did Germany. There were adoptions as early as 94. And there we were in 2015, a full 20 years later. So um, translations are done. English and Spanish versions are online. And just have fun Googling ICD-11 coding tool. It'll come right up. You can start entering diagnoses and codes just appear. It's that easy. So at, the, uh, at last year's uh, mid-year meeting of the EIC and the morbidity reference group, those are the two WHO committees I sit on, China reported they were done with translations, have invested several million dollars in preparation. They haven't gone there yet, but they will probably be one of the first. So the mid-year meetings are coming up again, and I can report maybe this summer uh, where we are uh, again. Um, I have vote for the IFHEMA on both uh, of those subcommittees and have held those seats since 2005. So there's Discussion uh, last week was on malignant neoplasm with METS, uh, morbidity forum, in a, in having a morbidity forum in the future, um, and uh, other such issues. So there's still discussions going on, but, but haven't been any major changes to the tool uh, or to ICD-11 in a while. So it's appropriate that we continue our discussion. We'll have to transition for mortality, for underlying cause of death, and eventually for um, morbidity. It is on the plate for discussion for NCVHS, and I have a seat there, and there are actually two of us, Val Watzloff from Pittsburgh, who is a well-known HIM individual in the U.S., sits on the other subcommittee, 
And we will both do our very best um, to help move I-11 forward and have it be a smoother, less onerous process this time than it was last time. So that's the good news. Have fun with the coding tool online. Thanks, Margaret. That was Margaret Skirka. Margaret is a nationally recognized consultant in health information management and is past president of AHIMA. Margaret is the president of Margaret A. Skirka, Inc. She was appointed to the WHO's family of international classification systems for the past 15 years with voice and vote, representing the International HIM Association. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again so very much, Margaret, for being on our program, and you can read Margaret's report on ICD-11 on today's ICD-10 monitor. Coming up next is surprising results of today's Talk in Tuesday listener survey. Stand by. There are numerous pre- and post-payment audits by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services each year. For cardiology practices, preparing now for these future audits keeps you proactive and ready should you be contacted to support your payments for E&M services. Cardiology practices are among the top pillars of E&M services, which also makes them prime audit targets by Medicare and other payers. With guidance from a webcast led by Terry Fletcher, you will be empowered to keep your documentation and coding compliant and accurate. Register now to attend Auditing E&M Outpatient Visits in 2021, Cardiology and Peripheral Vascular. That webcast is Wednesday, April 21st at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Register now. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday listener survey is Lori Johnson. Thank you. I am pleasantly surprised with the results of today's listener survey. The results are... Written and available for viewing, 51%. Oops, 52 it jumped up to. Verbal is 5%. In process is 9%. No coding guidelines written or verbal is 11%. And not applicable is 24%. So we have some top-notch participants in Talk 10 Tuesday. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Lori. Again, thanks very much. Now it's time for our very popular segment here at Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Last week, my husband and I went on a post-vaccination, we miss being empty nesters vacation to use some of my airline credits. We had to change destinations when Georgia dropped its mask mandate. The airport was insanely busy. I hope most people were vaccinated, but I have my doubts. About 36% of people have had one shot, and around 22 to 25% of the country is fully vaccinated. Georgia has the lowest number of people fully vaccinated as of April 10th, 15%. Actually, as of this morning. Uh, and Ohio, where I live, is at 21.6%. And I've administered about 0.00025% of those shots personally. The biggest risk in traveling is not on the airplane. The way the circulation, ventilation, filtration is set up makes the plane relatively lower risk. The worst exposure is in the airport while you wait where people are congregating shoulder to shoulder like sardines in insufficient seating. Here are some common mistakes which make me crazy. People wearing only a face shield. It is recommended to wear a mask in combination with a face shield. The face shield may stop some forward trajectory droplets and may protect the wearer's eyes, but aerosol can travel around the edges. 
people wearing masks with valves or vents. This may protect the wearer, but it just spews any germs they are emitting into the air around them. If you wear that kind of mask, you should wear a surgical mask over it. Men wearing single-layer gaiters. You can wear a gaiter, but it either has to have two layers of fabric or you need to fold it over to double the fabric up. And, of course, the most prevalent issue is the -the below-the-nose mask wearer. Think about it. When you normally breathe, your mouth is closed and all your air is inhaled and expired through your nose. The point of masks is to capture droplets and aerosol. Your nose has to be covered in addition to your mouth. It's as though people think wearing masks is for show and not for function. Having a mask draped from an ear loop or wearing it as a chin strap isn't doing anyone any good. Also, the virus doesn't give special dispensation to you if you are eating. When you remove your mask to eat or drink, you are exposing your airways. When I travel now, I avoid eating in the airport or on the plane. I had to request a customer service personnel lift their mask back up over their nose often on this trip. It is exasperating to me. If you have to touch your mask constantly to readjust it, it is defeating the purpose of wearing a mask. It signals disregard for your client or your customer. If you have had to do it multiple times in the first hour of your shift, it's likely that's how the day is going to go. Get another mask that fits. There is another solution, too, and I'm showing a a slide of it now. This picture shows a face mask support frame made by a company called 4Ocean. There are other manufacturers, but I like 4Ocean's mission to remove trash from the oceans and rivers and to repurpose the plastic. The frame helps secure your mask over your nose and under your chin. From my research, I recommend double masking. This consists of wearing a surgical mask, not an N95 respirator, and a cloth mask atop it to improve the fit. This both protects the wearer and the other individuals best. When I do this, I have my mask support frame on my cloth mask. So when can we stop wearing masks? We are nowhere near herd immunity, and vaccination protection is not 100%. My husband says I am vaccine-obsessed, and he's right. I inquire at every meal, and each of our servers was either partially or completely vaccinated, and this made me so happy because they are really vulnerable from their patrons. We are in the next wave, which I predict may be pretty big from spring break and Easter encounters. Vaccination is in a race with the variants, and I really hope we win. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Erica. That's going to be a wrap for our 457th live edition of Talk to Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, Tim Powell, Stanley Nockerson, Margaret Skirka, who reported our lead story, and as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor Talk to Tuesday. Thank you for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.